With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome back to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan and in this episode we're going to be celebrating some of the real unsung heroes of the sport, the track staff. Before we get into that though, I just want to share a little message with you that I received from one of our listeners called Al Pretty. Hi to Al. Now Al has been working his way through the back catalogue of Humans of Speedway while driving around New Zealand, particularly on a long drive to Wellington. He's checked out Jeremy Doncaster, Gary Havelock, and Shane Parker and he shared a Shane Parker story with us, which I'm sure that Shane Parker wouldn't mind us sharing. Uh, you'll hear why. Um, Shane Parker says Al used to live five minutes from my parents' house and he had the street name near his house. Anyway, not long after Shane Parker left the street, the street name disappeared. Mystery surrounded it. Then I was looking through Shane Parker's pictures on Facebook, and what do I see in his garage in Australia? Yep, the missing street name. Only Shane Parker would do something like that. (laughs) I'm sure it's in pride of place. Thanks for getting in touch, Al. If you'd like to get in touch, you can follow us on our Facebook feed and you can send us a message through there. Just look for Humans of Speedway. We've got a new group, actually, as well. You can join in that as well. Um, And also on Twitter, we are at Speedway Humans. It'd be great to hear from you and give you a mention in the next episode. On to this episode, then, all about what goes on behind door number 96 at Swindon's Abbey. Stadium. Now, number 96 is a little bit of a bolt hole for the track staff at Swindon, and one of those track staff is called Graham Cook. Now, if you used to read a website called the Blunsdon Blog a few years ago, Graham was the man behind that, detailing the everyday goings-on of the track staff at Blunsdon, all the stuff they get up to. Now, he's been involved with the Swindon track team for quite some time, and he's going to give us an insight into the work that goes on to prepare a track. As you'll hear, it's more than just shoveling 
Shale around. There's a real science into what goes on in preparing these tracks. And beyond that as well, Graham is also one of the Swindon track staff who make the journey every year to Cardiff for the British Speedway Grand Prix. Graham is actually one of the guys who opens the pit gate, so he's been heavily involved in some iconic incidents uh, that have happened at the British Grand Prix. And he's also heavily involved in dismantling the track after the event, long after you've gone home, when you're either in a nightclub or tucked up in bed. We will hear all about Graham's experiences. He's also going to design his dream meeting on uh, Speedway Paradise at the end, which just leaves me to say a very warm welcome to Humans of Speedway, Graham Cook. Hello. It's great to have you here. And often when I'm explaining what Humans of Speedway is about, it, it is about people like you. You know, this podcast, while we talk to star riders, and, and I love doing that as well, it really the idea of this podcast was to shine a light um, on the people that without which we would have no sport and without a speedway track, we would definitely be struggling. And I think a lot of people are looking forward to hearing about some of the work that goes in and the nuances of how you prepare a great racetrack. And of course, your time working with the track at Cardiff and, and so on as well. But before we get into that, and there is a lot to get into, let's start at the beginning for you then. Where did your love affair with speedway begin? Well, I didn't have much choice with the sport really because my mother was a Wembley Lions fan going right the way back to the 1930s and my father was uh, a New Cross supporter um, so I was taken to my first world final in, in uh, sort of about the age of two um, and uh, at, at, again at a very early age um, saw a number of uh, Speedway meetings and it just became part, part of life really my my early heroes were Peter Craven and, and Ove Fundin. And I remember having uh, rosettes in the days when there were rosettes, rosettes with their names and their photographs on. Um, so Speedway's always been, you know, part, part of my life. Um, and when we moved, when I was a child, when we moved from London up to the West Midlands, my, my dad and I started going to... Uh, Wolverhampton to Monmore Green in the days before they had the very large stand there um, and the hero there was one Ollie Olsen um, yeah. who was very much the number one there and it's been a, a, an enormous delight that in latter years through working at Cardiff for the Grand Prix that I've got to know Ollie really well and um, it, it's been a, a super chap um, had a bit of a break from Speedway at college and university time. But then um, in 1983, um, living not far from Swindon, happened to hear a radio broadcast saying, well, it's the start of the Speedway season at Swindon this evening. And I thought, yeah, let's get back into it. So I introduced my wife to the delights of um, the Swindon Robins. Um, and we started going along and... It all came back to me, and I've been a fan, a fervent fan ever since. But I've been very, very fortunate in that I've had time now uh, to be able to indulge myself more than just being a fan, to actually get involved in the, the work go that goes on behind the scenes. It's fascinating, I think, the story with the, of the relationship that people have with Speedway, because you hear, I think, more often than not, it's very similar tale to what you've just told, that uh, people are introduced to it as youngsters, they maybe drift away a little while and then they go back and it's like they've never been away. It's it's one of those things that just, like an old friend really, isn't it, that sticks with you? 
It's very much so. I mean, it, it's an enormously friendly sport. Um, I mean, uh, I've got two children. I mean, they're grown up now. But um, Stephanie, my my daughter, I think she attended her first Speedway meeting when she was about uh, two months old. David, my son, who's now one of the start marshals at Swindon, I think he was six weeks old. Um, and they... I used to take them along when they were toddlers and they used to run off, but I never felt any concern. There's never been any trouble. Uh, I can hardly remember seeing any uh, members of the police force at, at Swindon. They certainly weren't needed. And it, it was a secure environment. Um, and it was a nice sport to get them involved in because they, get, they got to see their heroes and they got to meet them as well. Uh, and it's that kind of close relationship. The sort of people talk about the kind of the family of Speedway, um, which attracted me um, to the sport so much. And you, you took your wife along when you rediscovered Speedway. You went along to watch that um, match with Ipswich, um, with yeah. Swindon and Ipswich, wasn't it? I mean, what what did she make of it if she's never been before? I, I think she was amazed by it. Um, I think you know, she'd seen it on television, you know, the world of sport, you know, when it would crop up between, um, you know, Dickie Davis introducing yeah. you know, the, the horse racing and the wrestling occasionally. Yes, some very exciting stuff. I know that part of the country rather well, and I know that the sport is very popular down there, as you can see with the big crowd that attended. But she'd never actually been along to see it, and I think that um, it, it, it's the buzz of it, it's the excitement of it. And, and when I've taken, you know, other people along, to Speedway for the first time, you know, they'll often say, oh, you know, we've, we've, I've seen it on telly. But when they actually get there and you stand near the start line and you hear the bikes revving and you can feel that thunder underneath your feet and then suddenly that explosion uh, of action and power and excitement, it, it, it's breathtaking. And, you know, I've, I've yet to take anybody to a Speedway meeting who hasn't come away at the end going, Wow, you know, is it yeah. like that all the time? You know, uh, yeah. So, you know, we were hooked, um, and it became, you know, every Saturday night because it was Saturday nights in in those those times. Every Saturday night, we would go off and we would see Swindon, which and in 1983, it, it wasn't exactly the best Swindon team in the world. It was, you know, Phil Crump and several other riders really, and Phil, bless his heart, kept the team together, but they lost far more than they won. Um, but, you know, we were hooked. We had our, our hero, um, a, a Danish rider called Alf Busk, who was uh, a reserve, and he used to get a, a, some fearful treatment from a section of the crowd not too far away from us, but we kind of felt sorry for Alfie, and every time Alfie scored a point, it was like, well, it was like a, you know, a goal in a cup final or a six in a, a twenty twenty match. You know, we were leaping around. We were hooked. It was great. And making that leap then from being a, a very avid supporter at various stages in your life to um, being involved in the club uh, at, at a greater level and, and getting involved with the with the track staff and how how did all that come about where you uh, where you crossed the fence as it were? Well, I uh, I had some time on my hand and um, I knew uh, Rob Bamford, who's a great speedway statistician who also lives in Malmesbury where I live um, and he was working on a book and asked me if I could contribute some um, some data from some of the programs that I'd kept um, and he happened to mention to me that um, you know the season was about to start and he was going to put out an advert looking for volunteers to come along 
uh, on a Saturday before the start of the Speedway season at Swindon um, just to help Gerald Richter, who was the track curator at the time, um, you know, set up the air fence, etc, etc. So I had a, the Saturday was free. So I said to Dave, my son, who was, I, I think, nine at the time, um, fancy coming along. So he was up for it. So off we trotted. And if my memory serves me right. I spent the entire day lying flat on my back underneath air fence panels, holding the collar of the air fence whilst Dave held the rubber kickboard and somebody else um, clipped the kickboard to the air fence. Um, it was fairly exhausting uh, and it was fairly mucky, but we really enjoyed ourselves. And at the end of the day, um, Gerald, um, who was the, the track curator, came across and said, you know, thank you very much. You couldn't come back tomorrow, could you? So uh -huh. I looked at Dave and said, shall we? He was certainly up for it. So we went back on the Sunday and it was just sort of five or six of us finishing off various bits. And at the end of the Sunday, Gerald said, well, you're not doing anything on Thursday, are you? And I said, well, not, nothing that I can't move. And he said, well, come along on Thursday at sort of in half past eight and help us set, set up for the meeting. And that's how I got to met, meet Gerald and his number two, uh, Rod Ford, who's known throughout the Speedway world as Punch. Um, and I got to know Gerald and Punch and... Um, Punch is, is still one of my best friends. Gerald is still a very close friend after all these years. And we just started working as, as a threesome and then gradually it became a foursome, a fivesome. And the daytime track staff took off from there. It's funny, isn't it, how wheels within wheels sort of lead to, uh, to things. I mean, what are the biggest surprises that you found now looking back on since taking over as being a member of track staff, since crossing the fence, the things that you have learnt about Speedway since becoming a member of the track staff that maybe you didn't appreciate to begin with? I think the biggest surprise is that you, you never stop learning. Um, I think that, you know, that the more I learn, the less I know really about track preparation. I think um, the, the closest to the Speedway curator's role in sport is the cricket groundsman. And we know about the dark arts of preparing a wicket in cricket. You know, it's 22 yards, it's, you know, a grass-based uh, surface um, that uses the roots of grass to hold the surface together. It's three three yards wide, and an awful lot of work goes into preparing it. Um, but uh, cricket fans will know that there are, there are bowler's wickets, there are batsman's wickets, there are tricky wickets, there are fast, there are slow, etc., etc. What I think what I've learned over the years is that Speedway tracks and their curators are very, very similar, except, of course, they are huge in comparison. Um, the amount, the sheer amount of work that goes into creating a, in inverted commas, a good track, a consistent track, is remarkable. And I don't think we've ever stopped learning. Um, I mean, in the early days, uh, you know, I was very much the, the boy uh, who was sort of you know, sent off to go and collect things, you know, make sure a tractor was in the right place, make sure a piece of equipment is in the right place, but oh, for goodness sake, don't touch the track. Um, as, as time goes on, you know, I, I've, I've got more used to the sort of the, the cycle that's concerned. But, I mean, the Speedway track is, is a hu huge area 
that's constantly changing. It's almost like a life force, really. It changes from day to day, from hour to hour. It can change from minute to minute. And one of the jobs of, of, of the track curator, and, and I've worked with two brilliant track curators in Gerald Richter and now Ronnie Russell, the job of the track curator is to anticipate how the track is going to evolve, how it's going to develop, um, and to make sure that any work that's done works with the track rather than working against it. Now, I think people are going to be surprised as to how much work goes on behind the scenes looking after a speedway track. And we've been chatting um, on email and so on before we've done this interview. And you've been saying that you're having meetings with the track staff, even though there's no season uh, for Swindon in 2021. Uh, and even through the, the depths of the off-season, you've still been getting together virtually to, to talk about the track. And, and were it not for the pandemic, you would have been meeting up at the track on on the days that you're allowed in there to do work. Talk us through preparing a speedway surface and, and the cycle of jobs that are, that are required. Um, if we take it from the end of one meeting to the start of the next, what's the work that goes into preparing that surface? Right. I mean, basically, um, we are tenants at the, the Abbey Stadium. So we have uh, access to the stadium on a Thursday um, the rest of the week the, the stadium is used for greyhound racing. Occasionally when there's a, a, a BT or a televised meeting that goes on a Monday and we have to fit ourselves around the greyhound schedule. Um, but effectively at the end of a, a standard Thursday um, we try and put, we call it, put the track to bed. So uh, as soon as you know that the riders f have done their sort of farewells and have retreated to the, the changing room or have gone off to a press conference, um, the track staff get uh, get ready. All of the shale is brought back from the kickboards, back from the the air fences. Um, we get the tractors out on on track. Some, occasionally, we might even get the big blade out, although that's a bit difficult because getting access onto the track through a crowded pit area is quite difficult at Swindon. But we'll try and relay as much of the the track as possible. Occasionally we'll bring out new material because there's a constant need to refresh the material because shale does get tired um, and when it gets tired it doesn't bind as well together, um, it loses its its core strength. But we'll actually put the, um, the track to bed, we'll smooth it out, flatten it out and then w effectively we have to leave it almost for a week. Um, that, that's not so bad because the weather will do quite a lot of our work for us. You know, if it, if it rains, I mean, we won't leave the track wide open. It'll be packed down, so it'll be quite firm. But, you know, rain throughout the week is no bad thing uh, because you know, rainfall is the best kind of watering that you can possibly get um, for a speedway track within reason. Um, and it'll be left. It may well be that some remedial work will be done over the weekend introducing new shale or just smoothing out some areas which have been damaged in, in, in some way. Um, and some work will be done by Ronnie and Punch uh, and also Dixie Dean, who, who used to be the track curator at Newport and who's now joined our team and is a, a, a fine addition to the, the Swindon track staff. Uh, they'll do some work on a Wednesday. The Thursday team, myself included, appear uh, at half past eight on, on every Thursday morning, except for the Thursday before Christmas and the Thursday after Christmas. So we're there during the season and also during the closed season as well. Uh, but on a race day, we'll arrive at 
at 8.30 and that's when um, the work really starts. Uh, Punch, Rod Ford, would have been out watering the track um, if it's been very dry during the week. He'll, he'll have been out there from sort of 7 o'clock in the morning beginning to get water in, into the track and then um, Ronnie and Dixie will go about working the track um, developing the racing lines, smoothing it out, while the rest of us busy ourselves with you know, air fences and, and everything else that's that's required for a speedway meeting. We hear a lot about watering the track and and so on some meetings perhaps that the watering is done too late, sometimes, sometimes perhaps it's too early. I, I guess this is a, a crucial dark art to, to how a track behaves, I suspect, the watering, as to how long you... And I think probably the surprise is how long you have to water the track for. Yeah, I mean... You know, shale, um, I think it's fairly well known that, that we're finding quite difficult quite difficult to get hold of decent quality shale. I mean, it used to be a, a, um, a very large byproduct of, of, of mining and it had all sorts of uses in, you know, the, the base for um, pavements and roads and the like. Nowadays, there are alternatives and therefore shale isn't seen as being an important byproduct anymore and the mines don't necessarily and the quarries don't have the the facilities to be able to grind the material down to the kind of level that we want so we're constantly looking for it but shale itself is um it's sort of it's a chemically active um substance combining sort of hugely compressed clay with softer clay pieces so so basically it's a clay based surface that we use in the uk different from the ones that are used in Denmark and Sweden and and Poland. This is the kind of material that we have here. And clay needs to be, it needs a moisture content. Um, and, and watering is very much the dark art. I mean, I think that we've got one of, one of the best exponents of the dark arts at Swindon in Punch, um, who, who takes care of nearly all of the, the watering for us. And what he's trying to achieve... Um, as with every aspect of track preparation, is is consistency. It, it's all about consistency. We want a, a consistent track on a weekly basis. Basis. We need it to be consistent during the meetings, so that we get similar times in heat fifteen to the one recorded in heat one. We need to get consistency across the width of the track and also down through the uh, the, the the top level of the shale down into the base itself. And it's the water that helps the the shale and the clay within the shale to, to bind. So it not only keeps down the dust, but it also makes sure that you've actually got a good, firm, solid surface. If you get it right, then the shale becomes mouldable. You can actually pick it up into your hand and you'll often see track staff going out onto a track during a meeting, grabbing a handful of shale and compressing it in their hand and then releasing it. Well, you don't want water running out of it because then that means it's been overwatered. But you actually want it to hold its shape. That means it's right. If it doesn't, if it just falls through your fingers, then the shale is too dry. So too little water on a track and the surface begins to break up. You get dust, you get inconsistency. Where you've got inconsistency, you've got danger because riders can't predict what's going to happen uh, from metre to metre. You get poor ra- racing, you get poor visibility and just a, a general unsatisfactoriness. If you put too much water on to it, because it's clay-based, it becomes slimy. 
and it becomes slippery so there's no grip for the riders. Once again, you get inconsistency because they'll go from areas where there's grip to an area where there's no grip and, and back again. And once again, they, cover, they come in covered in shale. They can't see where they're going. The racing is poor. So getting the moisture content absolutely right and keeping it right is vital. You also can't wet an overly dry track quickly. Um, because what you need to be able to do is to get the top layer, which is the racing layer of shale, to bind with the base layer, if you like, the sort of the foundation of the track. If the track is too dry, what happens is you'll water the top surface and the top surface will be wet, but underneath it will be dry and the two bits will never actually stick together. So as soon as a rider starts broad sliding, a whole mass of the track will move and you've got disaster. If you've overwatered the track, it's very difficult to dry it out quickly. I mean, normally what we do if the track has been affected by rain throughout the day is you'd fluff up the surface with some small sort of prongs just to try and get air into that top layer and then begin to sort of pack it down and by turning the shale over and over and over you can begin to dry it out um, but there's still doubts about you know how much water has got down below how well it's binding some people have talked about you know using sawdust to try and dry out a wet track but Sawdust works for one meeting, but it completely messes up the shale. You end up with these great big lumps uh, of material, which are no use to man the beast. So when we have used sawdust in the past at Swindon, we've literally had to blade the whole lot off before the next meeting and completely relay the track. So what we tend to do is we water often early on a race day and try and keep it even um, throughout the day. Sometimes we'll even water it on the night before so that the water has a chance to move down into the track before it gets evaporated off by the sun. Now the Swindon track underwent uh, major redevelopment um, well in the 2019 season right the 2019 season which you were involved in which was quite a lot of work to achieve in a short period of time you were saying your access to the stadium fairly limited and the decision to, to go ahead with the work was at fairly short notice. Um, 2021 of course there's further work going on around the surroundings at um, the Abbey Stadium which is going to mean no action for Swindon Speedway this coming season but give us an insight into the work that's been ongoing at the Swindon Stadium there's, there's always been talk of things happening there but um, the redevelopment work of, of the track was was pretty major work for you well um, almost since I've been working up there there's been stories you know the stadium's got first of all it was going to close um, then there was a furore in in the, the local media and the, you know the people of Swindon who said you know no, we, we can't allow this to happen. So then it was going to be a new stadium uh, on an, a, a, a location not far away from the existing one. Um, and then for, for various reasons that uh, I don't know about that didn't come about. And then we had houses being built, getting closer and closer. So that, I mean now you know some of the people can. You know, you wouldn't want to be putting out your washing in your back garden on a Thursday, put it that way, if you're that close to the uh, to the pits. Um, so there were, you know, lots of stories about, you know, making changes to the track. But 
it was at the end of the 2019 season that we we, we turned up on a Thursday to to start you know taking in the air fence and do the cleaning, removing all the kickboards and replenishing those and and all of the other jobs that we do over the winter. And um, sorry, it's after the 2018 season. That's right. And some markers had been put out that went partly across the track and partly across the, the, the centre green and then reappeared on the back straight. And th that's when we knew that, you know, the, that there were going to be changes, but nothing was confirmed. And those markers stayed there. And then it was 50 days before the first meeting of the season was due to go off that we got confirmation that we were going to have to bring the, the, the track in and reduce it from 363 metres down to um, 320 and actually move all of Turn 1 in on itself. Um, and, and that was a huge undertaking. And we spent far more days than, than we probably should have done um, up there working um, recreating the track, putting in new drainage, putting in uh, new lines, um, building a new safety fence, working with the constructors to um, make sure that the, the wall that separated the outer edge of the speedway track from the Greyhound track was completed and at the right height and the right kind of conditions. Then bringing in the um, the base foundation material, the hard core that went down first of all, and then the limestone that went down on top of that to help with drainage, and then the actual shale itself, and then actually widening, using the the opportunity to, to widen the track all the way round. So we, we actually made the straights and turns three and four significantly wider than they were before. And it was a real race against time. I mean, the, the, there were times when, you know, the rain was pouring down. It was so cold, you couldn't feel your fingers. And there we are hanging on to a length of fencing as the wind buffeted us while, you know, posts were being drilled into the ground and we were attaching them. So, yeah, it was nervous, but it was, it was quite exciting though as well because you realised that you were in at the start of what could be quite something really quite exciting. And I think we realised that as the work went on, um, we were pro we were producing something special, a special speedway track. I mean, the old Swindon speedway track was, was, was I think, probably great for when the sport started in the 1940s and in you know, 1949 and during the, the 50s. But I mean, the fact is that the straights were very long. The, the, the bends were wide, but they were quite tight. Um, now we actually got shorter straights wider straights enormous turns one and two and with the extra work which which we did in enormous turns three and four we created a a beast um but even though it was looking all right in shape there are all sorts of problems which we found which came to fruition on press and practice day when um riders came out and actually tried the track and found that turns one and two because they were newly laid were soft there just wasn't time for the material to bed in. But worse than that, turns three and four were like concrete because all of the lorries, which had been bringing materials down to turns one and two, had been driving across there for the, for the last 50-odd days and had compacted that down. So riders were, were struggling to get round one and two because it was quite deep. 
and then falling off on three and four because as soon as they tried to broadslide, the bikes were just sliding away. So we had to delay the start of the season a, a little bit to do some more remedial work. And so Swindon started off with a series of away meetings. Um, but it didn't take too long until we started seeing some, some absolutely magical racing. And I think the racing toward from probably mid-July onwards towards the end of the season was the best speedway racing I've ever seen at Swindon in, in all the years I've been going up there. And you're mentioning you've got limited access to the stadium of what, as well. I, I suppose that you are really kind of in the lap of the weather because if you turn up one day and the weather is fairly unpredictable, then it doesn't leave you much time to, to counteract the elements of Mother Nature, does it, before the start of the meeting? Weather is, is vital. Um, if you get... Um, we need this consistency all the time. So, I mean, clearly, if you've got a very, very hot day, bright sunshine, and worse than that, bright sunshine and wind, the top surface dries out very, very quickly. So you've got to water more often, but you've got to be aware of what's underneath that top surface, and you don't want that to turn to slime. So a punch is out on the track throughout the day, looking at the shale. He's working with um, Ronnie and Dixie as well to decide where they're going to be working, what they actually want to do with the shale, where they want to put some, some added grip. I mean, we do tend to rip the inside of turns two and turn four just to, kind of, just to reward riders who, who want to try and put come back to the white line, give them a little bit of extra drive through. So he will work with them throughout the day but all the time he, he's monitoring, um, he's, he's looking at you know, the possibilities of you know, rain. If it looks if it's going to rain, then we have to close the track down a little bit. So we will flatten it out and, and make it hard so that the water runs straight off. And then we'll try and open it up again after the rain has passed. There's also temperature considerations as well. Um, at the start of the season, at the end of the season, when you get cold evenings, as soon as the temperature drops and as soon as the sun goes down, moisture starts coming up from underneath the, the, the base of the track. So what at five past seven looks the perfect track, at twenty past seven looks shiny and icy. And that's a, a real problem then for us because we've got to try and get rid, ameliorate that, that moisture. Because as soon as the rider hits it, they're sliding off and they're going into the fence and you know for people who've been to Swindon you know that you know, some of the speeds that um, riders are achieving are, are extremely high and that therefore you know we need to make it as as safe as we possibly can so all the time we've got that then there's a there are even more considerations like the fact that the Swindon track is cambered so what we have to try and do is to find a way to make sure that the top of the track, the higher points of the track, are as moist as the lower points. Because if we simply just slop water around, the water runs down the camber, so you end up with dry, dusty conditions up near the air fence and a swimming pool down by the white line. So those kind of things also need to be taken into account. The biggest foe, of course, of Speedway, rain. Um, have you ever had situations where you've got a perfect track, you're ready to go, and you get that huge deluge just uh, shortly before the match that, that can often throw everything into, into chaos? I mean, how do you cope with, with that kind of situation? There was one particular day, uh, Swindon were riding against Bellevue. This is when Lee Adams was 
you know, the master of Blunston, and still probably the most stylish rider that I've ever seen. Um, we'd been working all day, it had been very hot, but by sort of four o'clock, clouds started to mass in the west. Now, Swindon Track sits at the top of Blunsdon Hill, and it has very much a sort of a microclimate. And there have been times when it's been raining in Swindon Town Centre, it's been raining in Cheltenham, it's been raining in Sirencester and Oxford, but it's as dry as a bone at Swindon, uh, at the track. Um, and we have actually seen times when clouds have come towards Blunsdon Hill and almost biblically moved either side of the track and, and disappeared off again. But on this one particular day, um, the clouds began to mass and we were a little bit concerned. And I left the track briefly to pick up uh, my son and my daughter, who my wife had brought them halfway across. And when I left, the track was bathed in sunshine. As we were driving close to the stadium, the, there was a cloud burst. And by the time we got into the stadium, standing at the top of the pit gates, I couldn't actually see the other end of the track. The rain was so intense. It had passed by about quarter past seven. But when we went down to the, the bottom end of the track, and Blunsdon Circuit is sloped so bends one and two are the lowest point at, within the stadium effectively when we got down to turns one and two the main drain that we, we we dug had been washed away almost and there was water three quarters of the way up the banking towards the air fence well we'd spent so much time trying to get the um get the track right and there was a certain importance about getting the meeting on as well because of fixture congestion that we got our water cart out which at the time had got the facility to be able to um, vacuum up water and during the course of the next hour and the track staff worked amazingly we, we removed 15,000 gallons of water from the speedway track now at half past seven the, the referee came down and said come on lads let Let's call it off. And we said, no, 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 please. How long can you go? And he said, well, I'll give you until eight o'clock. There are people in the stands. I'll give you until eight o'clock. And there were photographs that were taken, which show uh, Punch, in fact, standing. And the water's almost up to his knees on the track itself. But we pumped it all off. We pumped it all off. And at 10 to 8, we got rid of the last um, water cart of, of, of water. And Eric Bucock was the manager of um, Bellevue and he came down and he had a look and he was, oh, I'm not too sure about this lads. I, no, I think really you, you, you ought to admit perhaps that you know, it's beaten you. But we were determined. We were going to get this meeting on if it killed us. Anyway, the riders went out in heat one. Uh, Lee went out, looked at the track as he always did. And we're all terribly, we're now really worried about you know, what's, what it's going to be like. And I have to say, heat one wasn't pretty. Uh, Lee gated, the other three got filled in fairly quickly, but nevertheless, we knew it would take sort of four or five races to actually turn the surface over. Anyway, Lee hammers away, wins the race, and Gerald and I are standing at the, the, the pit's entrance as Lee comes up, and he's shaking his head from side to side quite vigorously, and we, our hearts sank, you know, Lee's going to say, you can't run speedway on that that's awful, call it off. 
Anyway, he parked his bike up and we heard that the, the track announcer announced that, in fact, Lee Adams had broken the track record at Swindon. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> so we rather tremulously approached Lee, quite imagining that he would turn around and say, you know, what on earth did you think you were doing putting on a track like that for us to race on? Um, but he turned around and he said, well, why were you shaking your head? He said his bike cut out on the, the after, on the final run through to the line. He could have gone quicker. Um, <laughs> now, after sort of five heats of fairly mucky racing, the surface was turned over and we had a great meeting. Um, the Robins won. Eric Bucock came round to our little um, bolt hole, our little track staff room, which is ubiquitously referred to as number 96, because it has a door to it, which has got number 96 written on it. Um, and put his head in and said, I have to say, lads, I don't know how you managed it, but well done. So it, it is possible to rescue success from the jaws of disaster, but it doesn't, doesn't happen all that often. You're listening to Humans of Speedway. That is the voice of Graham Cook, who's one of the long-standing members of the track staff at Swindon Speedway and also involved uh, on the main days of the um, Cardiff Speedway Grand Prix as well. We're going to talk about his experiences at Cardiff very soon. We're talking about Speedway tracks and, and how you get them in good shape. And we've been talking about how you deal with um, a lot of water on the track. One of the big things, of course, with Speedway is the threat of rain. Track covers are always mentioned. When we have a key meeting of why we're not using track covers and Swindon were involved in uh, checking out various track covers and, and options like that and you found that perhaps they caused as, as many problems as, as they solved and what was your experience with track covers Graham? When they were first mooted uh, Terry Russell uh, was heavily involved in together with Ron and looking at you know, the possibilities of track covers. And we looked at lots and lots of materials. But in the end, because I think of, of costs, it was decided that the, the Speedway promoters would purchase one set of track covers. And the idea is that they would be sent around to tracks when there was a televised meeting to try and uh, ameliorate the effects of a, of a rain off uh, on the television schedule. Well, these track covers were made up and when they arrived they almost filled a container at Blunsdon. The idea was that they would be based at Blunsdon and they would then be taken off in a lorry and driven to another track. They were so heavy. I mean unbelievably heavy and difficult to work with and the first time that we had cause to use them we got the track staff in on the day before and we all gathered and we started carrying these things out and laying them out. They were joined together by, by Velcro. And because they, were, they had to be designed to cater for every track, they, they, were, they were a compromise to every track. So they didn't really fit. Um, so we had lots of folding and folds and bits that didn't fit. And it was like a jigsaw without the picture on the box, except it was enormous. Well, we spent, I think, about five hours um, putting out these covers. Um, and, of course, we, we were realising that if you put some a plastic sheet down on your lawn and the sun comes out, if you pick it up after a couple of hours, there's an enormous amount of moisture underneath it, which has been drawn up. So 
we couldn't actually prepare the track. We had to lay these things on a, on a bone dry track in the hope that effectively uh, they wouldn't start drawing up and we wouldn't end up with something like a meringue underneath the covers when, when we removed them. And it, the trouble was that when we went back the following day and then spent an equal amount of time removing the covers, water had got under them because I mean, at Swindon, the Greyhound track is is at least higher, at least the same level or higher than the Speedway track. And, and water was actually coming down through the Greyhound track underneath the, the, the fence and underneath the covers. And, of course, all of this water that was raining down on the covers was running off and rather than being absorbed into the track evenly had now formed a huge lake down on turn one so we're pulling back the covers and we've got in equal amounts areas that are slimy so slimy you could barely walk on them because they were that slippery and areas which were absolutely bone dry um, now trying to prepare a track then from that kind of base was almost impossible added to the fact that we were all so tired that uh, um, I'm not saying I, th I think actually somebody was physically ill at the end of removing all of the all of the these covers and then they all had to be cleaned and then they all had to be put back in the bags again it was a huge task now if you're in Sweden or Denmark let's take take Vojens for example Vojens is a, a one-use stadium. Ollie Olsen and his team have access to that, that racing track every day of the week, 24 hours, hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So if he wants to put down covers, he can, he can do it. It's much smaller than Swindon anyway. He's got bespoke covers and there, there's a track staff that are, are there who can do that throughout the week. But where you've got shared stadium, as, as we've got at Swindon, and as is the case in, in most tracks across the country, you just can't do that. You haven't got that time and you haven't got the, the manpower, the person power to actually put those sheets down, make sure that they're secured and then take them up again. Even if you forget about the problem about do we prepare the track before we cover it or do we cover it and then try and prepare the track? So... Yeah, you know, covers, they're a nice idea. They work on a cricket ground. They work on a cricket square because you just fire up the hovercraft, pull it across the, the outfield at Lords, put it over the, the sacred 22 yards and, and, and off you go, basically. It keeps the, the moisture off. But you can't do that with the speedway track. It, it's just not possible. Speedway tracks, I'm learning, are a, a lot more complicated than they look. And, um, and you forget how much moisture is in them. And they need to breathe, like all of us. Um, let's turn our attention to um, something else that you might be well known for. Uh, you were behind a website which talked about all the adventures of, uh, of people who were involved in track staff and curating the tracks and, and all this kind of thing called the Blunsdon Blog. Now, you started this off and it really kind of got going and, and was um, pretty big in the speedway world at one point and tell us a story behind your website and your experiences of of being a bit of a speedway writer really yeah um i'd always been interested in writing anyway uh, and i'd always found writing really quite quite straightforward it, it wasn't an, an arduous task 
Um, and I'd also spent quite a long time working in, in education on, the, 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 on computers and information technology. And it was at the end of my first year of working with, with Gerald and, and Punch that a, a friend of mine, who's now a member of the track staff, uh, ironically, came up to me and said, well, that's the end of the season. What are you going to be doing on a Thursday? And I said, well, I'm still going to be going up on a Thursday. Yeah, but there's nothing to do. You won't have to do anything until March, will you? And I'm thinking, well, that's not my understanding of it. So after our first non-speedway season Thursday up at the track, I thought, I'll, I'll write something and we'll just put it up on a... a a blog somewhere. So we came up with the name The Blunsdon Blog and I, and I wrote this slightly tongue-in-cheek account uh, of, of, of what we'd done and what it was like and put it up and people started responding to it. And I did one for the following week and again we got more comments coming in and comments of, you know, can we have some photographs as well so we can see what you're, what you're doing. So it grew and it grew. We used a, a website um, or part of a website that was uh, uh, being used by a, a friend of mine, Neil Wise from Tattinger Marsh, who were uh, uh, sponsors of, of um, Swindon Speedway for a time. We used a bit of his website and then we branched out with blunsdonblog.co.uk. Um, and it's a little bit like the archers, I suppose. It was a sort of weekly tale of track staff. Um, <laughs> and we, we tried to keep it light. There were some bits that I, I couldn't put in for all sorts of reasons. Um, but we tried to keep it light. And what I wanted to do was, you know, I was, I was so in awe of people like Gerald, Punch, Ron... Uh, and the other guys, Mike Hunt, who is the, the clerk of the course at Swindon, who's also the clerk of the course at, uh, at Cardiff for the Grand Prix. You know, people like this who've been working up uh, at the Speedway for so long, you know, for so many years, given up so much of their time for the sport. I just wanted, you know, to to show people, you know, who they these people were. And so the blog grew. Um, and it was quite fun writing it on a Sunday um, and it, it came out every week and it ran for about, I think, about nine years. It, it spawned three books, uh, The Year of the Blog, um, Abbey Road and The Abbey Habit, um, which all sold quite well and continue to sell as well through online bookstores. Um, and yeah, it, it was fun. Um, I decided in the end to, to to knock it on the head. I mean, at one stage we were, you know, we we were getting huge figures of, of people, you know, reading it twenty five, thirty thousand, thirty five thousand people a week, um, and doing searches. I found that you know there were people in Peru who are reading it on a weekly basis, and I'm thinking, what on earth will they be making of this? I know we had quite a a, a fan base, if that's the right word for it, in um in australia and we also had lots and lots of scandinavian readers um because at the same time we were also pushing the the team halter gb in our fascination and, and fandom of of, of runner halter which, which remains to this day um but yes it, it was great fun uh, after a time i decided that i was big in danger of repeating myself running out of jokes um 
and so we just decided to let it quietly die. But a lot of people wouldn't let it die, and I still get people who say, no, you, you're not the Blunston blog bloke, are you? And I go, mm, well... Well, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, I might be. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Recognised again. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you should say that, actually. Um, I, uh, I have a listener to this podcast in Peru. I, I don't know who it is, but I know that there is one. They may well be the fan of the blog. You never know. <laughs> In which case, this is going to be a great day for them. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> um, looking at the, um, you mentioned there Cardiff and the, the the Swindon track staff being involved in that. Obviously, a, um, a key fixture in the whole international speedway calendar the the british grand prix at cardiff so unique in its surroundings and one of those temporary tracks that um often cause a lot of debate but i think less so in the in in the latter years that tell us about how you got involved in that and 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 what your role is on on that because i think it's you know it is uh it is an iconic speedway fixture of 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 the modern times really isn't it to be involved with yeah i mean it all started, I mean, again, it, it, through, through Terry Russell. He was responsible for um, the, the Grand Prix um, before it came to Cardiff, and, and he was responsible for, for pushing the idea of, of using Cardiff as a, a Grand Prix centre in, in 2001. And it was agreed at the time that the, the track staff during during the, the day would be made up of partly of the Newport track staff because they were the local Welsh club but also Terry's track staff from Swindon so I went along I think for the first four or five Grand Prix you know purely as a fan but when I got involved with with, with Swindon uh, I was asked if I if I'd like to go to Cardiff and said but of course absolutely so um, for the first few years we were working with the Newport track staff but then you know very sadly Newport closed down so it then became the, the Swindon track staff because effectively we were working with the sport on a on a weekly basis uh, people knew what the jobs were knew what how to do them and we formed pretty much the same team for about the last 10 or 11 years at Cardiff um, and I mean the whole Cardiff experience starts on the Thursday night at Blunsdon because we normally had a meeting um, immediately before the, the Grand Prix. And we do our normal Thursday work, put the track to bed, go home. Following morning, a group of us would go off to, to Cardiff for, for the Friday, uh, arriving down in Cardiff at about nine o'clock in the morning. And uh, we work throughout the weekend down at Cardiff. Um, and... It's it, it's enormous fun. It, it it's hard work. Um, it's it's exhausting, but it's exhilarating. And we've made some 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 wonderful friends o- over the years. Um, don't see much of the racing, but <laughs> but I but I I do make sure that it's always recorded um, on the skybox so that I I can watch it uh, in in the week that that follows. But effectively. Um, we provide the support. Mike Hunt, uh, who is the clerk of the course at Swindon, is the clerk of the course at the Cardiff Grand Prix. Uh, Andrew Reynolds, who's the assistant clerk of the course alongside myself at Swindon and the Pitts Marshal, he's the assistant clerk of the course. Um, so, you know, they're very busy in, in themselves. I mean, the rest of us man 
the, um, the, the gates around the track. There are three entrances to the track. There's one um, for individuals down by the, the start gate. There's an entrance on turn four where all of the track equipment is, is stored and comes onto the track and they use it. And then there, of course, is, is the pit gate at the, uh, the Dragon's Mouth in, in the stadium where the riders come out onto the track. Um, and, and over the years, we've all developed our own expertise. And the last, I think, uh, six or seven years now, I, I felt enormously privileged to have been working with, you know, my son, Dave, on the, uh, the pit gate. And effectively, our job, there are three, three of us, Edwin Hutchinson, who's another one of the start marshals at Swindon, and Rex Woodruff and myself and Dave, work on the, the pit gate we make sure that it's manned throughout the weekend all the way through friday all the way through saturday to make sure that um, people come uh, only people who come onto the track have got their right accreditation at the right time we liaise with with ollie and hans danielson from uh, arkel who are the the danish company who actually install the track uh, we lia liaise with them about what can be done and what you know can't be allowed onto the track etc we make sure that there's somebody's there all the time we interact with members of the public who, who come up and sort of ask about the track, you know, how many tons and how many lorry loads and when does the work start, etc., etc. Um, and then we're involved in the extreme high pressure of practice. Um, the practice on the Friday afternoon is far harder work than ever the Grand Prix is on a Saturday. It's absolutely manic, uh, but it makes sure that we've got our our skills absolutely honed so that that pit gate gets opened so fast and is always ready and available should there be an incident. And then from the early years of going there, we, we, we got to know the, the lads from Arkill, the Danish team, who are a, an absolutely superb bunch of, of chaps. And um, we said, can we, can we do anything to help at the end of the meeting? And they said, well, you know, if you want to hang around, then yes, you, you can help us take it all apart. So for, for the last 10 years, we've a small group of us have stayed on once all of the air fences have been taken down and all the banners have been removed. Uh, and we work right the way through until sort of you know, four or five o'clock Sunday morning, dismantling the, the, the superstructure of the, um, of the track with, with, with the Arkill lads. So it does mean that Sunday, there's no, there's no point in trying to hold a conversation with me because I'm completely <laughs> out of it. But nevertheless, it's just a wonderful buzz. And there are kind of magic moments at sort of two o'clock on a Sunday morning when you're standing in the middle of the Millennium Stadium and you, you just see something which has had 40-odd you know, thousand people 12 hours before. There's now 15 of you in there. Um, and, and and everything's been dismantled. It, it's just a, it's a brilliant experience. Yeah, an eerie experience almost as well, I imagine. And working on the pit gate, I mean, that's, uh, there's a lot of focus around that. Obviously, you, you're letting the riders on and off the track. There must be quite a few stories that you've had over the years, some notable experiences. What would those be when you think of them? Well, we've had a couple of them. Um, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I was... Um, part of the infamous Emil Seiferdinov Scott Nichols fight at the pit gate. Blimey, that's a fairly decent story, Graham, if, if you're involved in one of the most iconic uh, yeah. moments of, of British Grand Prix Speedway history. They did a feature this year. They got the two of them together 
in, in the studio to talk it through. And I had a word with Emil afterwards. Um, at that time, that was before, that's when I was working with two of the, the Newport lads on the, the pit gate. And my job, once the, the gate had been opened, was to push the air fence open and stand by the end of the, the, the air fence, the open air fence panel, and then shepherd the riders through and then down the tunnel. So the race finished, the riders went past, we opened up the gate, I went up, stood by the end of the, the air fence panel, and I could see that there was, there was some pointing and pushing, and then the, the pushing became a bit of shoving. He's just shrugging him off, so Futonov won't let it go. And then I realised they were actually coming towards me, so I thought, right, get out of the way. So I went and stood with my back to the, the main part of the air fence panel, away from where this went on. They collided with each other by, by the pit gate. Right. People started erupting from through through the pit gate because you could see what was going to happen. And as I moved forward, uh, we've now found out that it was Emil, swung his foot, the one with the steel shoe on it, and it connected right on my ankle bone, um, which, which brought me short fairly quickly. Um, two of the Newport lads then managed to get between them, and between us, we managed to get them down the through the pit gate. It wasn't then helped by somebody who then barged into Scott Nichols and then Scott came back for a second lot. Oh, reaction from the team from Cyprusenov, that is out of order. I'd learnt a little bit from that experience so that when, uh, I think it was Nicky Pedersen and Hans Anderson had a, a coming together, um, yes. a couple of Grand Prix later, I got well out of the way. Let them get on with it, that, that, they'll sort that out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that, that there have been some interesting moments because... You know, as with all aspects of the sport, these are very high pressurised moments. You know, the riders are hyped up, their mechanics are hyped up. You can't expect people to be reasonable and rational at moments like that. Um, all you can try and do is diffuse any situation that you think is beginning to brew. Uh, and make sure that everything appears as as calm as it can be. With your track staff hat on, though, looking at the the Cardiff uh, racing surface, obviously it is a um, a temporary track installed and, and removed from the stadium in in the course of a week. Ollie Olsen and his team uh, are behind that. Um, you have a bit of an insight into how they do it. Just sort of tell us and explain to us the the sort of work that goes on to create that world class racing surface that we see when when we have the Speedway Grand Prix at Cardiff. It, it's down to the material. And it's probably down to the way that the Danish crew lay it down. It's put down in layers. A layer of shale goes down, then it's watered and it's compacted and bladed. Then another layer of shale goes down, it's watered, it's compacted, it's bladed. And gradually throughout the week, they build it up until they get to the level on the Thursday where the track is completed. So I think the most surprising thing that... that we still find every year is as we're dis dismantling the superstructure um, which is made up of these large sort of concrete um, shuttering boards that are all locked together we start unlocking them and craning them away um, when you get down to the the lowest level where the shale is up against the boards when you remove them there the moisture level throughout 
probably a, a, a meter's worth of shale is exactly the same at the top as it is at the bottom. There's no dry area at all. The whole thing works together because when you've got that kind of uh, moisture content, you've got the consistency and that's the consistency that we're always searching for in Speedway. On a permanent track, um, I, mean, I can tell you, under the base layer, the foundation that we've got for the, the Speedway track at Swindon, because its shale has been com compacted and compacted and compacted and watered and compacted and dried and compacted, it's like rock. It is rock hard. So you've always got an incredibly hard surface with the racing surface on the top of it. But at Cardiff, it's all the racing surface. It's really quite a, a, a magical substance. They, d they take great care with it. Um, I mean, every year when we're packing a a away, you know, a chap comes out and drills holes at various parts around the track and takes samples away with him. And those are then, uh, they measure the moisture content, they measure the average particle size so they can see how much of the track has been broken down. And that then helps them to determine how much new material needs to be added for the following year. But it, it, it really is um, quite unlike any other Speedway track that, that I've ever been to. When you look back on, on your time in Speedway, Graham, and, and obviously being involved much more than the most fans are, both at Swindon and, and at Cardiff, what are the great memories and the high points that, that you, you know, take with you from, from those experiences? I, mean, I suppose if, if we take Cardiff... Um... I think everybody who knows me knows that um, I'm a Runa Holter fan. Um, three of us went out to, to Sweden um, at the invitation of the, the late and the, and the much lamented Lee Richardson um, back in 2007. And we attended a, a meeting at Vetlanda where Rico was riding on our first night in in this week of travelling around which culminated with the Grand Prix at Melilla and we were made to feel like sort of royalty you know we were friends of Lee's we were Lee's guests we were wined we were dined every time a, a plate was empty it was refilled every time a glass of beer was empty it was refilled um, everybody stopped and chatted we were Lee's friends and they were desperate that we should go away with a, a, a good impression and, and it was the most wonderful evening. Um, but they were up against um, Ross Begana. Uh, Jason Crump was number one for, for Vetlander and Greg Hancock was number one for Ross Begana. Vetlander won the meeting but it was tied on bonus points. And uh, the three of us, Neil Wise, Phil Rice and myself, you know, it was all sending out Jason, weren't they, obviously, and Jason Crump will obviously come out against Greg Hancock. Oh, no. The captain of Vetlander was Runa Holter. Mr Holter will come out and he will... And Runa came out and beat Greg Hancock. Was treated you know, almost like a deity, really, at Vetlander. Um, and we found out a couple of days later, sitting in our hotel in Vetlander, about to go off... I think we were going to Lejeune to Gislaved to watch one of their meetings. Um, and who should walk into the, the, the breakfast area but Runa Holter. So the three of us sort of sat there in awe and, you know, do we chat to him? No, we better not, better not disturb him. You know, he's obviously, you know, far, far too important. So we're, we're eating our meal and, and this voice comes across with, 
hello lads are you from England and we realized that it was Runa um, and he turned out to be the, the, the friendliest nicest bloke that we could we could possibly meet and we kept on bumping into him and he arranged for us to meet up with his mechanics and his team and be his guest while he was setting up the bikes we had the Runa halter hats and and all this kind of stuff um, and it, it was brilliant so I came back I wrote a blog and said you know we've met up with you know one of the nicest speedway riders you could possibly meet uh, and it was obviously he was very very popular with with everybody that, that he met Lee Adams spoke very highly of him Rico thought he was absolutely you know a great bloke but of course we'd never seen him apart from you know that one one occasion a year when he'd appear at the Grand Prix and he was very much sort of a, a mystery because he never rode in in, in the UK um, and the following year uh, at Cardiff I was walking down the the area where the, where the pits is and I heard this voice calling hello my friend my friend and turned round and, and it's Runa um, <laughs> and it was a case of you know well you know when you've got a, a, a spare moment come and have a cup of cup of tea with the lad so I went and met uh, Christoph uh, and Michael who were his two mechanics um, and I introduced him to all the Swindon lads and he shook hands with everybody he had post for photographs uh, and it was absolutely brilliant and it, it started a sort of relationship with him that then developed so that the following year on the Thursday night at Swindon before the Grand Prix um, there was I suddenly heard my name being called at about half past six and was told you never you can't imagine who's just pulled into the the pits car park but Runa Holter's van has arrived and sure enough Runa's there with Michael and Christoph um, and they'd been reading the blog and keeping up to date with you know what had been going on um, and then Richard Crowley who's the announcer at Swindon came up to me and said you know you don't think I could interview Runa on the centre green you couldn't bring him out could you so I, I said to Runa I said would you mind being interviewed and he said well why would they want to interview me you know nobody knows me here well, clearly quite a lot of people have been reading the blog over the previous <laughs> year because we walked down to the centre green and the applause that he got was was astonishing. He was completely taken aback um, and he spoke very glowingly about it on the next few occasions when we met him. And, you know, all of the years that, that, that he competed until um, he, he dropped out of the Grand Prix, every year... Um, you know, Dave, Steffi and myself would always go around for, you know, a cup of coffee with, with the boys. We went out to Voyans, uh to see him in 2011. You know, we, we, we had our Norwegian flag and, and our Team Halter GB T-shirts and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So it was really great, you know, to get get to know him. So that will always be one of one of the high spots. Um, the Chris Harris winning the, the Grand Prix, that was a... Um, that was a mighty night but then they've all been um you know pretty special i suppose spending time and working with you know phil morris and and especially with with, with ollie olsen and his son torbin um has been you know extremely rewarding and in my, my time at swindon you know the the highlight is just working with the track team because they are they are special people and um they are some of my best friends and they are people who I admire greatly and who I miss e enormously, even though we do have our weekly Zoom catch up. 
thinking about the you know the riders that I've met over time I was never working on the track when Brian Carger rode for Swindon but Brian was always my daughter's favorite um and we sponsored him a, a tire once and had photographs and I got to know Brian so when he came back for the Lee Adams testimonial um we were having a chat and it was really rather nice to, to while well, I was having a chat with with Brian and his wife uh, his son Peter had come across um and, and was doing some some meetings in the UK and he was chatting with my son Dave in the pits and, and that was a, um, a a special sort of moment you can't take away the the memories of the last meeting at Swindon of course um, you know who would have known that on, on that night when we were celebrating winning the 2019 um, championship that um, that would be the last meeting that we'd see at Swindon for well it will be sort of two years mm. uh, but what a night that was you know I mean just tr tremendous celebrations and what a team and you know what racing on you know, the new Blunsdon circuit which had certainly been challenging to all of us uh, during the early parts of 2019 when we had to make the changes that were required by the the, the alterations to the stadium so, that, yeah, I mean, I, I've met lots and lots of really, really nice people uh, in Speedway and I, I wouldn't have swapped it for anything. This is Humans of Speedway. I'm in conversation with Graham Cook, who is uh, part of the track staff and uh, the assistant clerk of the course at Swindon. And um, it's the Swindon track staff who uh, are involved with the Cardiff track as well. And um, I put a little post out on social media before we recorded this episode, Graham, for uh, see if people had any questions to ask you about um, track preparation or tracks in general and things like that. And um, here are a few questions for you, if that's OK. Tony Rycroft asked a question. I think this is um, related to well, Cardiff, really. But what, what do you know roughly what the cost is of, of, of installing or creating a track like that for a one-off event? I, I honestly don't. I mean, it must be huge. Um, I don't know where you'd find that kind of information. Jeff Scott might have um, some, some information. Jeff seems to be able to unearth all sorts of uh, <laughs> uh, statistics about about Grand Prix, I don't know. I mean, it's a huge undertaking. When you see, you know, how many people are involved. Um, I mean, we only see it when it when it's being taken apart. But you know, at, at eleven o'clock on on a Saturday night, sort of four hours, four or five hours after the Grand Prix is finished, and you've got the Danish tracks team of probably about fifteen of them. You've got Ollie Olsen's small team of you know three or four. You've probably got well. There's the Swindon Four as well. You better add us in as well. There's all the guys who are you know cleaning up the uh, the centre green and uh, rolling up the carpets that that cover that. You've got the the cleaning staff are in cleaning the cleaning the seats because the stadium has to be returned back to the the stadium owners you know clean and tidy by I think it's the Monday after the Grand Prix. So you know everything has to be gone and everything has to be tidied up and you know it's it's an enormous undertaking even if you forget about you know the seventy odd lorry loads of material that you know have to come and go and come and go and the transportation of the um, the the big blade that they use at Cardiff that's brought across from from Denmark each year um, the storage for the the, the shuttering 
it, it, it's a huge undertaking, and I, I think what they achieve in if effectively you know, build a track in a week and take it apart, just just stunning. Nathan Thomas says, I'd like to know if it is possible um, regarding banking on on temporary tracks. You, you don't see much of it, and wondering what if there is a reason for that. Because it, it's a, a smaller track than you know some of the huge uh, ones out in Poland, which have more significant banking it it doesn't need so much um i think it also then comes down to the way that the, the materials actually laid if you want to get banking in then you've got to have a a, a well-established foundation and a well-established foundation can only be created over a significant amount of time i.e you, you put it down flat and then you begin to build up the banking because mm -hmm. it actually holds its shape far better um, with the temporary tracks my understanding is that if they actually made the banking any more than it is then it would start to become unstable so rather than being flat and quite smooth you would actually have movement so you'd have you know quite a small depth of track on the inside and a significantly large amount of depth on the outside i mean at cardiff itself when we take the white line up, which is one of the first jobs we do after the meeting is finished. Um, the shale is probably only about four or five inches deep on the uh, on, on the asphalt floor of the, the stadium. By wow, the time you get much. to the outside, it's over a metre deep. Hmm. So I think, you know, if you had it even more than that, then you'd actually have significant differences in the the consistency of the material from the inside to the outside, and I think it also might be uh, slightly more unstable. But I'd leave that kind of um, those kind of calculations up to um, the boys from Arkel and and Ollie and his uh, and his crew because they are the experts. Um, Andy Kay has been in touch. He says, uh, "Why do they grade uh, slash water a track?" After every four heats, I think again, particularly in the GPs, and sort of saying that sometimes that uh, the racing can seem pretty good, and then they grade and water it, and, and maybe the track doesn't um, respond quite as well. I mean, what are the hazards of of grading and watering during during a meeting? If if you don't grade, then you lose the um, the racing material, which is the material at the, the, the top of the track. Um, on a speedway track, you you've got your foundation. Your, your base layer, which is often years and years of compacted shale. And then you try and bind some top material, which will allow the, the, the rear wheels to, to spin, but also give them just the right amount of grip. This material inevitably gets moved because the pressures put upon the shale by a spinning rear wheel tyre uh, at that kind of speed going sideways you know, has to be seen to be believed. I mean, we've looked at rear tyres at Swindon that after four heats have been shredded because of the, the enormous uh, impact and, and pressure. Now that all goes down into the tracks. So that material, no matter how well you compact it down, it will get moved. Now, if it gets moved off completely, what then happens is that A, the rear wheels begin to grip the, the track surface more but not in a consistent way. So they'll spin in some places and grip in others. And the trouble with the Speedway bike is that as soon as the rear tyre begins to grip suddenly, it starts to straighten up. So you get a poorer quality of racing, but you also start to get a line of rubber 
being laid down on the track, which is known throughout the sport as the blue groove. Uh, the trouble with the blue groove is that if you do get this line of rubber down on the on the racing line, the rider who can put their rear rear tire on that line of rubber will get so much grip they'll never be caught. So you end up with very very processional race, racing because as soon as anybody moves off the blue groove to try and overtake somebody who's on it, they're into deep material and it's inconsistent material, and then they've got problems with actually controlling the bike. So what we try and do is to bring the material back back from the outside and bring it back across the racing line. Now we won't bring all of it back because then you have too much of a depth of material. We will water the track to help it bind and also to keep down dust because that's the other major complaint that we get. You know, if we do get uh, a meeting and, and sadly a couple of years ago we had a televised meeting in the middle of one of the hottest spells of summer when from about 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning there was no water coming into the, the stadium. All of the taps were dry and we ended up with a complete dust bowl. Nobody could see anything. Um, the punters went away covered with uh, half of the track. Uh, the riders were dissatisfied. The racing was appalling. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a bad moment. We couldn't help it. It was out of, our, out of our control, but nevertheless that was the case. So we bring the material back down again to try and replicate what we want uh, is this idea that the time for heat one should be very very sim similar to the time for heat 15 so that everybody gets as good a, a go a, as possible now, now with regard to the grand prix of course they, they they grade every four heats and i mean some riders like the idea of drawing number one others hate it if you draw number one in the grand prix you always come out on a freshly graded track. Mm -hmm. um, th there are some riders who will come out nearly always on the final uh, r race before th there's a grading, and the, the the track is different. So, in in order to enable you know all riders to have something uh, as as fair as possible, we're constantly trying to bring the track back so that it is consistent across the meeting. But we also know that you know, the watering has to be so careful that even just a even a, a tractor going round with a water cart behind it, going two miles an hour slower than it should do, will put significantly more water on the track and will have a, a deleterious effect upon on the racing question here from ian brown who i assume is not the one from the stone roses but uh, has a question about the um type of shale used on the indoor tracks um, particularly at cardiff and and I, I imagine um warsaw as well is it different shale that we're using at, uh, at cardiff now versus uh, what we would use at say swindon and, and standard outdoor tracks in the uk i think it's a different type of material um it, it is a a finer clay type material that they've got um as i say i mean shale was this sort of you know byproduct of, of quarrying and uh, whereas back in you know even until the last 10 years you could actually go to a quarry and get shale which would be milled down to the, the sort of the five millimeter um size stone it's seven millimeters is the maximum size stone plus the right amount of clay you know that's quite easy now 
because shale is no longer used, it's been replaced, um, quarries just don't have the equipment to do it. And therefore, trying to find new high-quality shale, like the old Breeden, people used to talk about Breeden shale, um, which was lovely. There was an, an Edinburgh shale, which was a very, very red colour. We, we had a, a couple of loads of that uh, back a, a few years ago, and that used to bind together really well. But we've really struggled to find an, a, a decent supplier of shale. And trying to make it yourself, it just doesn't work. We get through you know, 50 or 60 tonnes of shale a year, you know, which just disappears. You know, some of it breaks down, a lot of it disappears as dust. A lot of it, uh, the clay content, get, when it rains, gets washed away, um, you know, and disappears down the drains and uh, and the like. So we get through a lot of material. And, and Gerald Ritty used to say, you know, it's taken God millions of years to create this shell. How how can you possibly think you can do it in two weeks? Um, and he's got a point there. You know, he's absolutely right there. But but the Cardiff shell, as I say, it's, it's got this springy feel to it. It just doesn't feel as if it will hold. Um, it, it feels almost sort of too delicate, but it does hold. And partly that's the material and partly that's the way that it's laid. As, as I say, you come in, you put a thin layer of about two or three millimetres down and then you wet it. And then you put another layer down, another two millimetres and then damp it down. And gradually you build and build and build and build and build. And so you've got that wonderful consistency from top to bottom so that if the track is going to move, all of it will move. And that's why you get this kind of springy nature. So it's partly down to the technique and the technology behind laying the track. But I think it's also down to the fact that they've, they've actually found some really, really nice shell. I'm not sure if it would work at, at Swindon, but I'd like to give it a try. <laughs> you make him just borrow it for a for a yeah, week yeah. <laughs> and make sure it works. Uh, last question from Neil Phipps. He says, why do tracks sometimes change in condition so dramatically from practice to race night? Uh, I, I guess this is probably the same as what you were saying at the start about how things can change over the course of an evening, you know, for going from a grippy track to a, to a slick track. Um, is that just atmospherics and, and conditions or, or can they can tracks be changed to perhaps suit <laughs> certain people perhaps if, if that not that that ever happens ever oh heaven, heaven forfend no um if it was a temporary track they've spent four days laying it it then gets pounded to pieces it then has to be rebuilt overnight now at the end of practice we the swindon track staff go out with our shovels and we begin shoveling you know all the shale from the boards now sometimes towards the the, the entrances of, of corners on, on the, the straights, you could have 18 inches, 24 inches of shale piled up against the, the fence. Now, that's all material that's been moved from where it was very carefully laid and, and feathered and watered and coiffured or whatever you like to, to call it. Interesting that track curators in Poland are called cosmeticians. Hmm. Um, I can't wait to see you know Ronnie and, and Dixie wearing white coats and manicured nails. <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting vision, um, but nevertheless, so you've got this enormous pounding. So we bring it back. Um, Gunnar, who is the the driver the, from Denmark, who who drives the blade, brings his his big blade out, and then he starts to fashion it back down. But they don't have that much time then to put the track back again. The other things to take into account are, of course, that with Cardiff, the condition 
within the stadium on a Friday is very, very different from the conditions on the stadium when the Grand Prix starts. Because um, you have the, the roof, which can be opened or closed. Well, it, it takes like 35 minutes to close the roof. So if you get caught in, in a rain shower, the straights are soaking wet, the, the corners stay dry. A recipe for disaster. So we tend to keep the, the, the roof closed, or if it's not closed, but just a little tiny gap. Suddenly you get 40,000 people coming in who are all breathing out in a moist air and they're hot and some of them may well be sweaty, I don't know. But nevertheless, the, you can actually feel the atmosphere change. You get an atmosphere change like that and the track changes. Um, so, I mean, from my own point of view, having seen the beautiful way that the track looks on a Friday morning, and even after, um, in the last couple of years, we've had Ollie Allen and um, Kelvin Tatum doing the, uh, the the junior school racing out there. They have an hour on uh, on a Friday morning to, to go around and learn the skills. And it's brilliant to see these kids, you know, little tiny mites coming up on their bikes and going out there and proud parents and all the rest of it. You know, that, that, that can be repaired um, because they're not really putting that much into the track itself but the track looks so beautiful on a Friday before practice and you start and I, I've often thought wouldn't it be lovely if it looked if it was this beautiful just before the Grand Prix actually started and the only way you could do that would be by saying no practice. It's been great and a fascinating insight into the life of a, of a speedway track, both at Swindon and at Cardiff. Just one final thing left for you to do now, Graham, and that is for you to design your own dream meeting in our Speedway Paradise feature. So got a few questions for you. And of course, the first question, very close to your heart. If you're going to be designing your dream meeting, Graham Cook, which track would you choose as the perfect surface to race it on? There are, there are three tracks that I've been to that um, I would love to stage a, a meeting at Cardiff obviously because of the, the whole the surroundings the, the, the stadium the people the atmosphere etc etc um, Blunsdon because as I say the new track has, I think it's, it it surprised us very pleasantly with, with, with the way that it's um, it's behaved but of all this, I, I still remember back going to Vetlanda. Um, and I know that, that some of my friends w aren't that keen on it. Um, it. It's a big, sandy track. But the actual stadium, it, it's a bowl in the middle of a forest um, with, with grass banks. And, and people turn up with picnic chairs and um they, they spread out on these grass banks and there's a huge pits complex and it's a big wide track so i th i loved vetland i thought it was it was absolutely it was it was magical so i i, I think I, I would stage my meeting at, at vetlander in sweden just as it is the the, the track and and the surroundings there it's all it's perfect yeah i mean it it, it, it was it was uh, as i say we were treated very very well because we were friends of, of Lee Richardson but I mean the, the whole thing you know huge crowd for the meeting that we went to spread out whole families lots and lots of children um, going and you know right right the way through the age bracket 
suddenly the entire stadium goes quiet because there's a little girl on the centre green with a microphone who's singing the Swedish national anthem and everybody in the stadium stands up and they're all singing it together and then the meeting goes on and then at the end of the meeting rather than just disappearing all the kids go around and they they were collecting up all the cans and all the litter and the entire stadium was tidied and cleaned as as, as the um the crowd went and there was a real feeling of you know th this was a their community they were so proud of the stadium and they they were so proud uh, and that they they felt so strongly that, that that we should appreciate how wonderful it was and, I, and i've never seen anything like it it really was quite uh, quite moving okay vetlander then it's uh, i think that's the first time we've had a vote for vetlander so um, you're breaking new ground there. Let's look at your all-time one to seven. Then this can be any rider from any era, uh, alive or or not with us anymore. No points limits or any uh, small print like that. Um, who would you have? Uh, right. Okay. Um, it, it, <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> where, where do you start? Well, I, I'll start my, my number one simply because he was my my, my childhood idol, and I, and I have met him in, in recent years. Um, he he wasn't always popular um, w with the British crowds, but <clears throat> he was the number one. He was the captain for Wembley at one time in his career. So number one would be Ove Fundin. Um, hard man, but um, and controversial, but I, I'd have him in my team at number one. I'd pair him at number two. Um, sim uh, and this guy should be a heat leader, but I, I've put him in, and. It, I've mentioned him several times this evening, Lee Richardson. Um, that was the the saddest moment that I can recall in, in Speedway when we lost Lee. Um, he was the perfect gentleman. Um, and I still treasure those times when, when he rode with Lee Adams in heats 13 and 15 for Swindon. You couldn't separate them. They were so close to each other. There was such trust, such control. And early on in the afternoon, when he used to bring his three lads out, little tiny tots, and they used to practice on the the centre green, and we used to chat with him. So Lee would have to be in uh, in any team. Uh, number three, because he was a mate, and uh, and he used to make everybody laugh. I had Brian Carger. Um, I never thought that we saw the the best of Brian Carger. Um, he he was a skilled rider. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But he also, he enjoyed himself, um, and and he was fun, and he was good with the crowd. Um, and um, I, I never heard anybody have say anything other than positive things about Brian Carger. So. Brian Carg, a, a good bloke, a good bloke. And alongside him at number four, fellow Danishman, um, again, child hero of mine from Wolverhampton, Ollie Olsen, simply because I've known Ollie, it feels as if I've known him all my life, really. Um, and he's still a smashing bloke. Number five, and now I, I have to start, you know, where do you go to? Because, I mean, there are so many great riders that we could include. Um, 
but again somebody who I've grown to like enormously in the in the last couple of years and I hope he does come back to Swindon sometime in the future Toby Mushalak um, great rider um, but more important a, a, a thoroughly decent chap a re really nice bloke to work with he's had his moments he's told me where to go on a few occasions when I've had to tap him on the shoulder and say sorry you touched the tape but nevertheless um, a really good bloke and then my two reserves one deserves it and the other one doesn't really uh, at number six I'd have Alf Busk simply because Alf was um, our hero when we first went to Swindon um, and he never gave up and he may have come last lots and lots of times but he was never badly trailed off uh, and we liked him for that and number seven and of course the captain of any team that I would pick Runa Halter no doubts with people like Lee Adams, Phil Crump, Peter Narlin, Jimmy Nielsen, Jason Doyle Martin Dixon from the the time when Swindon went down uh, a league and we saw some of the best racing that we ever saw at Swindon in those years um, Dicko who had a um, a testimonial uh, when he was with Swindon one of those riders who came to Swindon and you thought you'd never associated him with Swindon because he was a, a northern based rider but you know, a great bloke who you know at the end of meetings used to drive all the way back up to Teesside to start, start work as a I think he installed television aerials or something like that the following morning <laughs> it was astonishing and he had a, a, a testimonial day and part of the day was he invited fans to come along and uh, ride their bicycles around the the, the training track at Swindon and so, so my son my daughter and myself went up there and there were a few other people who came along and, and Dicko was there he didn't have a bike so I said right you have my bike Martin you know you you need to sort of race with so, all right so we lined everybody up and so there was my son David and then Martin Dixon right on the outside and Dave rode him off the track on turn one and Dicko said, he said, there's not many people do that and get away with it. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, just so, so many, you know, really great. But I would go with Fundin, Richardson, Carga, Olsen, Mushlak, Busk and Halter. It's not a bad lineup, you have to say. Um, let's move on to the next facet of um, the meeting, your dream meeting. And that is the person who's going to oversee the rules, the referee. Now, I know that you are involved uh, with referees a little bit because you are the assistant clerk of the course at Swindon. Um, without putting any noses out of joint, though, Graham, which, which referee would you choose for your dream yeah. meeting? I'm not overly keen on some of the Polish referees that we've had at Cardiff. Um, where, you, where, you, where you have been left scratching your head wondering who or why came up with that decision that's just been made um, I have to say you know, my favourite and somebody who I always look forward to uh, when they come to Swindon is Christina Turnbull um, you know, she's, she's great fun she's a real character um, she doesn't take any nonsense um, a, a, a meeting run by Christina is normally a, a, a happy meeting so I'd have Christina as my, my referee every meeting she has an, a, you know, a nice touch with um, with the riders, she's got a good sense of humour um, she's, you know, she's as sharp as they can be nobody's going to get anything over 
uh, Christina with regard to the, you know, the rule book and all the rest of it. And as I say, meetings, when, when she's doing the meetings, you know, th th they tend to be happy affairs. And she's also um, one of those people, and it, it's not that we, we seek this out, but it just means so much that at the end of a meeting when somebody comes up and says thank you, um, you know, when you've been going for sort of 15 hours, you know, from, and, and it's, you know, half past 10 in the evening and it's been a really hard day and you've gone straight from, you know, sort of 4.30, I take off the overalls and put on the uh, assistant clerk of the course, Pitts Marshal kit, and then you run it throughout the evening and, and you don't get to see, you get to see a bit of the racing, but not much of it. I never actually see an entire race when I'm doing the job because I'm always queuing up the next heat while one heat is is running or that there's always something to be done. Um, but when you sink back into a chair in in our little bolt hole number 96 and somebody pops their head around at the door and says, thanks for that, it, it means an enormous amount. And Christina is somebody who, who never fails to, to go around and acknowledge everybody's efforts. So good for you. Nice. Christina Turnbull then, um, she's going to be looking forward to going back to the Abbey Stadium, I'm sure, when uh, when she can get back there. Uh, hopefully to say thank you for that um, that endorsement as well. Um, the next section then in our dream meeting that we're looking at is the one rule you would change. If you could get your hands on that rule book, what's the one rule you'd change? You must maybe have one or two, being a, an assistant clerk of the course, that, that do your head in. If the rule book were, were, were to be changed that says, you know, it is up to the referee in their you know, understanding of the meeting and the circumstances of the meeting, if they feel it's appropriate to put on the two-minute clock, then all riders must be at the tapes. Not fiddling around five metres back from the tapes, but at the tapes, ready to race. Then, frankly, what they do in that period in between really doesn't matter. I mean, the fact is, we, I mean, we've had circumstances where, you know, there, there's been a, um, some sort of, you know, incident, there's been no uh, e exclusion, but then somebody has then been excluded because they didn't have time to sort themselves out before the next, and the, the delays just, just carry on. I think you know, most people would accept, you know, one minute or two minute delay in between races. I think what Speedway fans will not accept is riders coming to the tapes who are not mentally, um, physically and mechanically ready to give their absolute all over the next 65-70 seconds. Uh, and any kind of rule that means that a rider is discomforted in any one of those ways does the, the sport no favours whatsoever. And Poland and certainly the GPs, they have the, the, the countdown clock by the tapes as well, don't they? And that's very much a countdown clock to the start of the heat. Yeah, I mean, we have we have a countdown clock at Swindon. Um, I mean, some people actually say that the countdown clock actually slows the meeting down a little bit because riders know exactly how much time they've got and they will use every, every moment uh, possible. But it just makes life very, very easy for us. So we have a... Uh, a yellow flashing light in the pits which shows that the two minutes on I can stand at the top of the pits <clears throat> I can look down at the, the start gate I can see you know one minute 15 second and I'll then call it out 
to the rider or the riders in concerned. You now have one minute, you have 45 seconds, you have 30 seconds, you better get a move on because you're going to be out. And it's absolutely clear and transparent. Um, every track should have a two minute clock. I'm sorry that so few actually do have. <laughs> one day they may catch up. Um, final question then. On your dream meeting, we need an opposition. Who is going to take on your all-time one to seven? This has to be an actual team that did exist once upon a time, but which would you go for, Graham? Well, I wouldn't mind seeing that team that I've just chosen there up against one of the uh, the two Swindon teams that have won the um, the league in, in recent years. I mean, I realised that you know Toby wouldn't be able to ride for both teams. Um, oh, yeah. So I guess we'd take Toby out and put Lee Adams in and um, let, let, let's have the, uh, the one to seven from, from, uh, from 2019. Jason Doyle, Adam Ellis, Toby, Rasmus Jensen. What an eye-opener that was when they signed him. Troy Batchelor, Ellis Perks and Klaus Vissing. Great bunch. Rasmus Jensen is um, a reality TV star, isn't he, in, in Denmark? Well, he could have been a he was he was he was that in the UK. I don't know what he's what what he does in 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 Denmark. But I mean, the the fact was that quite a few of us were left sort of scratching our heads with you know Rasmus who who's Roscoe signed, and then we heard that you know, oh my God, he's having to drive from Glasgow down to Swindon to make his to make his debut, um, and then he turns up with Richard Hull, um, the old Wolverhampton and Newcastle rider, as his mechanic. And just blew us away. You know, the the man never knew when he was beaten. Um, real box office stuff. Tremendous signing. Oh, yeah, he's a great rider. I've seen him a couple of times and he's um, he's always exciting. I think he was on Love Island in <laughs> in Denmark or something like that. <laughs> so, oh, right, yeah, okay. he's, uh, he's, uh, he's well known uh, in some parts um, and in some people's DVD collections. <laughs> I don't know who. Um, Graham, it's been great chatting to you. Thanks for spending the time and, and giving us insight and all the all the things that you do and a, and a side of Speedway that um, is so important uh, to everybody's enjoyment, but um, rarely rarely gets um, spoken about um, too obviously. But it's been it's been great, and hopefully, um, I mean, I've learned something, and, and hopefully, other people have as well. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. My thanks once again to Graham Cook from the Swindon Robins track team uh, for explaining a little bit about that mystery world of what goes on at the stadium when you're not there, which makes our experiences all the better. If you are new to Humans of Speedway, well, don't forget to subscribe to our feed on whatever platform you used to listen on, and that way, when we have a new episode, you'll get a little notification, more than likely, that uh, tells you it's there and you can listen at your level. There's also some great past episodes. If you've not checked them out yet, make sure you do because there's some brilliant stuff in there, if I do say so myself. Um, but if I'm not going to big it up, who else is? Uh, Gary Havelock is one of them. Kelvin Tatum, Jeremy Doncaster. Can you spot the theme? I'm basically just working my way through the England team in the early 90s. Um, if you want more chat about Speedway Grand Prix, how about race director for the Speedway Grand Prix, Phil Morris. Lots more insight about the work that goes on preparing that and so many more episodes as well. Uh, just check them out at your leisure. And we'll be back soon with another episode of Humans of Speedway. Till then, take care. Podcast Network. 
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.